we have already had a better service than most get with the whole day's activities. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Lord, we give thee thanks for all the things that we've heard already. You heard made mention of William Kiffin. He wrote the introduction to Samuel Richardson's justification by Christ alone in 1647. He was a signer of the first Baptist Confession of Faith out of London in 1644, which they revised and signed again in 1646 to clarify their language that they hated the eternal sonship doctrine of the Presbyterians and Catholics. His father, grandfather, that was very pleasant to hear. What an example of a martyr that we just heard a few minutes ago. Let me read to you the first nine verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Amen and amen. amen. My dear brethren, these nine verses are the words of the living God. And they should be received as such. They're not my words, and they're not Peter's words, and they're not King James I's words. These are the words of the living God. What we have in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, which is a new covenant, is a contract explained. 
The contract is for your souls. God the Father has written it and Jesus Christ has sealed it with His blood and you are a beneficiary of a contract. And we get to read this when we come into this house and between meetings in this place, we get to read the terms of the contract, which is the gospel of glad tidings of good things that God has in store for those that fear Him which is an evidence of being His. I want you to look at these words that way. That this is the gospel is a contract of God with Christ for you. Of what Christ would do to fulfill the will of God for your eternal inheritance in heaven. Please forgive me if I'm too slow. And appreciate the value of each word. Please forgive me if I'm too fast and take extra time to review. You are not the only hearer. I try to balance my speed for as many as possible. I want to exalt the individual words to you of Scripture. I want to exalt the individual words of these nine verses to you. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God is pure. It is every word that makes up a phrase and then a sentence that gives us meaning. I want to preach these verses in such a way that I arouse your passionate appreciation for what is said here. If we do not appreciate what is said here and just go through the motions of having them read and explained to some degree in English, how are we better than the Muslims who hear their Arabic chanting five times a day? I want you to be passionate about God's words and appreciate them with great passion. I want you to be personally convicted. So I hope I present them in a way that personally convicts you and personally convicts me. If I say anything about my appreciation for the words or my wife's appreciation for the words, it's not to talk about her or me. It's to try to make it as personal as I can for you. I would to God, and I've always desired, and anyone that knows me knows this is absolutely true, I wish that there were someone else preaching and I could be his amen corner because I would be the best amen corner that I could be for him. Because I love the Word of God and I wish it was being preached better than I'm able to preach it, but God is in charge of all things. I hope that you will understand that I do care about rightly dividing the Word of Truth, and there are places in these first nine verses, two in particular, although there are more, there are two in particular that are quite difficult. And so there will be some time spent, and I hope it will not distract you or discourage you, by looking at a couple of places that are more difficult to align so that we get the meaning that God intended for us. I want you to be able to teach others when I'm finished teaching you. So I want to be plain. And I want to review and I want to be thorough. I hope that you will appreciate some of the technical difficulties. I hope that I can present this as Paul said he preached in 2 Corinthians 4-2 with these words. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, 
but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's how the word of God should be preached. Manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, and let every man's conscience stand before God as to what they're going to do with the truth once it's made manifest in the sight of God. We're both in the sight of God. I speaking, you hearing. May the Lord bless us. All of that was an introduction that we have in these verses. Such precious and glorious words and such precious promises that Peter will refer to in the first chapter of the next epistle that he wrote that we should be humbled before God and lifted up in our spirits for the wonderful things that the gospel declares to us. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. Do you know the amount of money and the amount of time and the amount of effort and the amount of worry that men put forth toward living an extra year? The fountain of life was sought by Ponce de Leon who ended up with Florida. A piece of sand. Brethren, we are so blessed. The gospel tells us about immortality. The gospel tells us about eternal life and it brings it to light. It was purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, was made manifest 2,000 years ago by His appearance on earth, His death, His burial, His resurrection. He sits at the right hand of God. And now we have these epistles written to us as if we were Peter's audience. Lord, have mercy upon us. Look at this place in the Bible. The first two verses are the salutation. And what a salutation it is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, addresses some scattered Jews in five provinces that are now central and western Turkey. He says about them that they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Bible teaches the doctrine of election. The Bible teaches that election is according to the fact that God had known us before time. He loved us before time. He will say to the wicked that He never knew them, but He's always known us. Jeremiah 31.3 puts it this way, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Thank you, Lord. Through sanctification of the Spirit, we understand these three things that are in this verse are not in a list. They are subordinate to each other, explaining how they progress. It begins with election by the foreknowledge of God proceeding through an operation by the Spirit of God unto the end result of the obedience and sprinkling of Christ's blood being applied to our account. The Holy Spirit consecrated and dedicated and set us apart for Christ's redemptive work, and the Holy Spirit set apart the Lord Jesus Christ to do that redemptive work for us. Sanctification of the Spirit. It must be that because of its location between the legal work of Christ in that last of the three clauses and the eternal phase of salvation in the first clause. That's a salutation. How is that better than, Hi, how are you? I am fine. Is this a little better? Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Peter's going to use that in his second epistle as well, worded just a little bit different, but it says the same. Then we have verses 3 through 5, which were so exciting last Lord's Day. Thirteen phrases that we ought to delight in each one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love to bless Him? When was the last time when you were driving in your vehicle, you burst into, you burst forth into praise with Psalm 103 verse 1. Bless the Lord, 
Oh, my soul and all that is within me, bless His holy name. We should break forth into praise like that. We've been taught that from Psalm 92 this morning. We've been taught that by the death of a young 19-year-old martyr. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first cause of all things in the universe is this being. He's our Father. It's not the Father. It's not Peter's Father. It's our Father. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are very blessed. Which according to His abundant mercy, how has He operated toward us? In fairness? No. Better than fairness. In justice? No. Sweeter than justice. Mercy rejoices against judgment. But He's operated toward us according to abundant mercy. Not bare mercy, but great mercy. Thank you, Heavenly Father. O Lord, which according to His abundant mercy, bare mercy, bare mercy, simply relieves the one that is condemned. Bare mercy would pardon the condemned rebel, but abundant mercy regenerates the condemned rebel and adopts him. Why would God adopt us? Why wouldn't He adopt those holy angels? There's nothing holy about me. And before you get haughty, there's nothing holy about you. They're called the holy angels. He had to make us holy in order to adopt us. But He adopted us. Abundant mercy. He just didn't pardon us. He adopted us. Praise His name. Because it says that according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again. That means we've been born a second time. Do you know that there are people on this planet, like you, that actually celebrate birthdays of their first birth? Can you believe that? We celebrate birthdays of our first birth? What should we do? Read Romans 5, 12 through 21 at those occasions. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Brethren, the point that I'm making is, there's another birth that's taken place in your life, and it's described right here, and it made us the sons of God. The first one made us the sons of the devil. The second one made us the sons of God. We've been born twice. Praise His glorious name. Hath begotten us again. Oh, unto a lively hope. Notice in that third verse that we have been begotten again unto a lively hope. Now that form of expression right there does not guarantee that all of us are going to have a lively hope. The verse continues to say, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God has provided everything for us to have a lively hope by putting within us a new man and by putting out there a risen, resurrected, reigning, and returning Christ who sits at the right hand of God. We should have a lively hope. He's provided everything toward us, but if we, like the Corinthians, allow false teachers into our church or allow ourselves to forget the glorious gospel of Christ, we will lose our lively hope. We'll have little hope, then we'll have no hope. But He's done everything in this verse because Christ is on the throne. We are born again. We will be with Christ. But the the liveliness of our hope depends upon us believing about the resurrection of Christ 
And so that reminds us that we have a living Savior. He's the first fruits of them that slept. If He rose from the dead, we're going to rise from the dead. Do you know that it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, is that the first half of 1 Thessalonians 4.14? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Because see, it's all based upon what comes last in this verse. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then all those that He died for are going to rise from the dead as well. Thank you, Lord, for that. Amen. You know, someone has told me in the last week that in their reading of Scripture, and I hope that First Peter 1 has helped, they are seeing the resurrection of Christ more often than they had noticed it before. And that is a good thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the principles of our faith. And it's very important for all of its consequences and the proofs that it gives us and the hope that it gives us. The resurrection was key. When Paul preached, he was going to get to the resurrection. When Peter preached, they were going to get to the resurrection. When you read Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, they get to the resurrection. Jesus just didn't die in a tree and then get buried in the ground like the Romans and the Jews conspired together with money to say. And that His disciples had stolen Him away. Those eyewitnesses from the Sea of Galilee, fishermen, and then the Apostle Paul, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, preached the resurrection from the dead. And they called that the hope of Israel. The real hope of Israel is not some millennial kingdom. The real hope of Israel is the resurrection from the dead, and it ought to be our hope. It's the great hope. Go ahead and put my body in the ground. When you have leave from me to put my body in a box and bury it underground, that means my spirit's long gone. My body's going to sleep for a while until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and then He will tear the bars away from my tomb like He tore the bars bars away from His tomb, and my body and my spirit will be glorified in heaven forever. This is the future of God's elect. And we should rejoice in that, and we should have a lively hope because of it. Because we shall live. Because He lives, we shall live. I'm appreciative of an eight-year-old that told me this past week how that baptism is destroyed if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if you're practicing proper baptism, then it better be by immersion or you're denying the resurrection of the dead. Because our doctrine of baptism shows a resurrection from the dead. I was thankful for that. Look at verse 4, to an inheritance. My dear brethren, we have an inheritance. You want to talk about a rich uncle that I mentioned to you last Lord's Day by way of example that leaves some notarized statement in your mailbox that you have 10 million coming to you? You know, we all agreed among ourselves, at least those I talked to later, that it wouldn't take 10 million to get us out in the morning washing our cars in order to get an inheritance like that. We could do that for less. But listen, we have a Father in heaven who's given us an eternal inheritance that's immeasurable. All the riches of the universe and riches that we do not even know about. The Apostle Paul, when he was in heaven, heard things that are not lawful for him to utter. There's unspeakable glory down here. What do you think it's going to be like up there? When we actually see what eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. We have an inheritance. You are rich beyond measure. 
out of this world. We walk by faith, not by sight. Keep in mind the warnings that the New Testament gives when it lists particular sins and says, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We want to hate sins in those lists. When you are on the job and you're worrying about your compensation, you make sure that you think about the eternal inheritance that you have coming. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 24 about working on the job, knowing this is why you ought to work heartily as unto the Lord, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. That verse is about one thing, you on the job. When you're on the job, you make sure you remember the real comp compensation plan. The real compensation plan is the reward of your eternal inheritance because even on the job, you are serving the Lord Christ. Therefore, when you're on the job, whatsoever you do, this is about the job. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily. Do it passionately. Do it with zeal as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. This is that one word in verse 4. To an inheritance. It says so much and it should change our lives about even what we're thinking when we're on the job. It will affect your marriage. We preach and teach that husbands are to rule over wives because it says so. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 24. Titus chapter 2 verses 3 through 5, we teach it. We teach wives to submit to their husbands in everything, as it says in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and to reverence them. However, however, the Bible also says, husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. What knowledge, Paul? Peter. 1 Peter 3, 7. What knowledge, Peter? Likewise, dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. When it comes to eternal inheritance, there is no difference between male and female. When it comes to our relationship to Christ, there is no difference of male or female. Just that word inheritance should change our lives. If you know that you have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven, then what is your role on earth? You are a stranger and a pilgrim here. We are just passing through this place because our inheritance is in another world. It's in heaven. As it teaches us, look at Peter knew that in chapter 2 and verse 11. He said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He knew that they were strangers and pilgrims and we should have that effect from knowing about our inheritance. You know, it will change how you talk about others. You will be more merciful in your speech about others. Look at 1 Peter 3.9 in this same epistle. This is for a man who wants to enjoy God's blessing in his life. It says in 1 Peter 3.9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. When someone rails against you, bless them, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. We're all going to be blessed, so we should just automatically, instinctively, easily bless others. Look at Hebrews 10. 
Hebrews 10. I'm, I'm working over the word inheritance a little bit more than I did last Lord's Day. I want you to appreciate what that word implies and how it should affect you, how it should affect me, how it should change our lives. We have an, an inheritance. God elected us to it. Christ died for us so that we could have it. We've been born again to it because it's the sons that inherit. Servants don't inherit. Sons inherit. The angels don't get it. They're passed over. The sons get it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds. The apostle is writing these Jews in Judea. Ye had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. What? They took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. You have a better asset list. You have a better balance sheet in heaven and it endures forever. So losing a few little things down here is of no consequence. It is discouraging to see people worried about things down here. Joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Cast not away therefore your confidence in verse 35, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. And it goes on to describe that we ought not to turn back, but to realize the benefit of our inheritance. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We can take joyfully the spoiling of our goods when we know that we have an enduring substance in heaven. Then it says incorruptible in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible. Everything on earth corrupts due to aging, decay, moths, rust, thieves, taxation, inflation. Whatever you want to look at, everything goes away. The strength of the young man disappears. The, the, uh, the, the luster of the woman's long hair disappears, both of which are the glories of young men and young women, but it's taken away. I mentioned to you that small business owners often overlook that important fact called depreciation in their income statements because it's happening every day. Their assets are depreciating. As I mentioned before, your pretty automobiles are oxidizing while you sit here with me for these few minutes. Everything is corruptible. But this verse says that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, meaning it is not even capable of corruption. Incorruptible. A bull means it doesn't have the ability to corrupt. This is what God has in store for us. It includes our body, and it includes all the other things that our bodies and spirits joined together will enjoy in heaven. Death is consuming and devouring you as you read, as you listen, as you hear me. Death is consuming you, for it's always working hard on sinners. Let me borrow a paragraph from a sermon preached a number of years ago. Think with me. Death is sucking the memory out of your brain. My mother died of Alzheimer's. She forgot how to swallow. She died of dehydration without knowing it. Because though we put water in her mouth, when her body was as dry as a bone, it would drool out the sides. Did you try the back of her tongue? 
What do you think? Death is sucking the memory out of your brain? The sight out of your eyes? Why do some of you have pieces of glass extended on framework around your heads and the rest of you just want to hide it by sticking little contact lenses on your eyes? Death is... Is there a chapter in the Bible that goes through all this? Ecclesiastes chapter 12 tells us that they are not called the golden days because we're corrupting. Death is sucking the memory out of your brains, the sight out of your eyes, the hearing out of your ears, the teeth out of your mouth, the taste out of your tongue, the moisture out of your mouth, the elasticity and clarity out of your skin, the firmness out of your flesh, the hormones out of your body, the form out of your shape, the strength out of your bones, the power out of your muscles, the flexibility out of your joints, the color and shine out of your hair, the hair off your head, the brightness out of your eyes, the desire and ability out of your sex, the insulin out of your pancreas, the processing out of your kidneys, the courage out of your mind, the remaining beats out of your heart, and the life out of your soul. Death is eating us alive while I speak to you, and its conclusive finality is about to take us all down because we're corrupting. You will decay until you are a rotting and weak lump, unable to eat, swallow, or breathe. And this death is good news compared to the death that comes next. The second death in the lake of fire. And when you die, your body lying cold, pale, and still in a casket, your spirit will be sent down, down, and further down into the black abyss of infernal wailing for eternal torment without relief or any hope at all of any lessening of the misery and pain for all ages to come. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's why it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again. There's been a new man born in you and in me, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that shall never die in any penal sense. We shall live forever. It says in verse 4, Inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. There's nothing defiling that can be allowed into heaven. Revelation 21 and 27 tells us. This is a little different than incorruptible. I just don't look at these words in verse 4 as being synonyms of corruptible, and yet we cheat ourselves of so much further and additional meaning. Defilement is to have some moral pollution affecting something that we do or something that we have, and there is no defilement in heaven. Everything is undefiled. We will give unadulterated, pure, holy praise to God. It will never be defiled in any way, by our minds wandering or our motives being corrupt. Thank you, Lord. And then it says, and that fadeth not away. The joy or pleasure of anything in this world declines, declines with its use over time. Cursing possession. I don't want to own it because as soon as I own it, I won't love it as much. It's terrible. Everything fades away. So we closed last Lord's Day by singing, I am going to a place where the roses never fade. They fade here, but not there. Because nothing fades there. Thank you, Lord, for that. These words, if man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, what will it do for your spiritual life to sit down alone someplace without your cell phone, without the internet, 
without any distraction and just read verses like these and meditate on what God has in store for you. He has an eternal inheritance for you that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, and it is reserved in heaven. It's reserved in heaven. Your reservation to receive your inheritance depends upon God, not you. Reserved in heavens, heaven means it cannot be taken from you. It cannot be changed. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot be compromised. And they can't change the price. So that you've got to pony up some extra cash. Because Jesus paid it all. Reserved in heaven for you. Look at Hebrews 6. It's only a few pages back. Hebrews chapter 6. Knowing that He had given you an inheritance and wanting you to be fully assured of it. Our Father cares that He communicates clearly to you. Our Father is not content, and I'm speaking very reverently about the infinite Jehovah God of the universe. It matters to Him that not only has He got this inheritance for you, which you will only realize truly and fully when you're in heaven, but He wants you to understand it now. He wants to bring life and immortality to light. He wants you to be sure of it. He wants you to be confident like Paul of it. He wants you to know that the reservation's been made. He wants you to know that it all depends upon Him and His faithfulness, not yours. And in one place, He wants to assure you by telling you that when He made promise about your eternal inheritance, He swore with an oath. You know, we go into court, so help me God. Well, what does God do? We swear by God because it's the highest authority in the universe. And since there is no higher authority, He has to swear by Himself. Surely, blessing, I will bless thee. That is an oath from God on His own authority and existence. Look at Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 19. Wherein God... Now that's our Father. Remember? Blessed be the God and Father. So when it says, wherein God, that's our Father. Right. I don't like surprises. Just go ahead and tell me ahead of time that you're going to do something nice for me. That way I can think about it leading up to it. I don't want you to do anything nice for me. You know what? God isn't going to surprise us after this life except the inheritance is better than we can imagine. But He's telling us about it now because He wants us to live in the light of it. Am I making... He wants wants us to be rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory while we're suffering, while we're 19 years old and being hung and saying I'm about ready to be launched into eternity, into heaven into the presence of Christ my Lord. Hebrews 6.17, Wherein God, our Father, I'm adding those words, because God is our Father, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's you and me. That's you and me. He wants to show to the heirs of promise. He's made a promise. I'm going to give you eternal life. When did God promise eternal life to the elect? Titus 1.2, before the foundation of the world. I made promise, 
But he has, he wants to more abundantly show this thing to you. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel when God's counsel determines that Jesus is going to die for you and you are going to be assigned to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ will stand in your place as a substitute. That is his eternal counsel of grace. That is called the everlasting covenant. That is a commitment and a contract between the Godhead. You're not involved at all. The world didn't even stand yet. These are the fantastic things that we believe. This is the eternal union of the elect with the Lord Jesus Christ that is not taught or believed hardly anywhere anymore, but we believe it with all our hearts and minds because the Bible says so. The immutability means God's counsel cannot ever change because He wants to to show you more abundantly the certainty of His promise and the immutability of His counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. That 17th verse, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. We have hope that is sure and steadfast. It doesn't move. It doesn't budge. It never changes. It never will change. And we can be assured of that by the fact that God, by two immutable things, immutable means it cannot change, two reasons. God said it. God swore when He said it. And why did He do all that? Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel. He wanted to comfort you that this is for real. Listen, if you got that piece of paper signed by the minimum wage customer service rep from a bank that said you've got $10 million coming from some rich uncle, would you want to go get that thing confirmed before you wash the car too many days? Oh, yes, you would. You'd be checking that thing out every which way you could. Well, God's already taken care of that, so you don't have to check anything out. And he put it in writing. This is not oral tradition that I'm giving you today. You have it in your laps. It's in writing. It is a contract. Back to 1 Peter 1. We come to the fifth verse. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That salvation ready to be revealed in the last time hadn't occurred yet. So that isn't the legal phase. It's not the vital phase. It's not the eternal phase. It's the final phase of salvation. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed in the last time. It hasn't been revealed yet. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ is what it's going to be called later in this very chapter. It's when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That that revelation hasn't occurred yet. Revelation means to show something. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, speaking of Jesus Christ, which in His times He shall show. See? He shall show who is that blessed and only potentate. King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ. There's coming a day, the final phase of salvation, in which Jesus Christ will reveal Himself to the whole universe as the Lord of glory. And in that day, the Bible says that we will admire Him. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 6 says that He is precious to all those that believe. 
It'll be a fantastic day. But that it's the final phase of salvation that is intended by those words. The last part of verse 5, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a salvation that we don't have yet. It is the redemption of our bodies. If they're put in the ground, if we're still alive, then we'll be caught up to the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. However, let's look at the first half of the verse. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. I want to make this as simple as possible. This is one of the difficult verses out of the first nine. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. The persons of this verse being kept are the scattered strangers from the salutation. Primarily, and us, secondarily, as the readers of this epistle a couple thousand years later. These persecuted persons were guaranteed eternal life as surely as any before or after them by the work of God that has already been described in verses 2 through 4. Verse 4 ends up with reserved in heaven for you. Now, is that pretty certain? See, God's power is not necessary to keep your name in the book of life. God's faithfulness is necessary to keep your name in the book of life. God's oath is necessary to keep your name in the book of life. But not God's power. There's some, there's another way that we need to be kept. Jesus Christ is going to keep us. We're already in Jesus Christ's hands and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. We're already in God's hand. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Election can't be undone. Christ's obedience and the sprinkling of His blood cannot be undone. This reservation in heaven cannot be undone. All those things are already certain and final. But there is another keeping that we need. The book of life is certain. No names are flopping in and out of it. There's no errors made in the book of life. No pages lose their grip on the binding and fall out of the book of life. But there is another way in which scattered strangers in Turkey and us here in America that are enduring suffering as this verse, the next verse is going to describe, need to be kept. And that is that we don't lose our hope. That we don't lose our confidence. That we don't lose our our sight and our view and our assurance of eternal life. So God keeps us by His power and the vehicle, the instrument of it, is our faith. Your name for being preserved in the book of life is not based on your faith, but God's faithfulness. It's all wrapped up in God who doeth all things according to the counsel of His own will. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. This keeping with the power of God is God's power available to the believer when he believes. And to the degree that you exercise your faith, God's power is available to give you joy and peace and hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. These are Bible words. In order for you to be kept, your salvation is already kept. The inheritance is safe in heaven, but there is the necessity of each of us being preserved a little bit toward it because sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we get moved away from the hope of the gospel. Does it say that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23? Yes, it does. The inheritance is safe in heaven, but there is the necessity of you being preserved to it. These scattered strangers were being persecuted. The Gentiles didn't like them because they were Jews. The Jews didn't like them because they had converted to become Christians. Nobody liked them. 
So they were suffering and they were being persecuted. Verse 6 says, they were in heaviness through manifold temptations. Manifold means many and varied temptations. These people were being tried as verses 7 and 7 describes. But God was going to keep them through all their trials and through all their sufferings by His power through their faith. Your faith does not get your name in the book of life and your faith doesn't keep your name in the book of life. Your faith didn't send Christ to the cross and your faith doesn't apply Christ's work from the cross. Your faith is necessary to believe the promises of God in order to have the full assurance of faith and the power of the Holy Ghost in your life to keep you established, strengthened, settled in the faith. Okay. Can I prove that to you? The elect, verse 2, are justified in verse 2, and are regenerated in verse 3, are heirs preserved already. Your faith doesn't add to any of those works. The means of their preservation is not God's... The verse the, In verse 5, who are kept by the power of God, that preservation there is not God's covenant, not God's faithfulness, not God's love, not God's oath. It's God's power. And that word power helps us understand something along with the words through faith. The words through faith tell us that this is some aspect of the practical phase of salvation because it depends upon our faith. Are you all with me on this? You know, I want to make it as simple as possible. There's lots of lines here that I'm not going to convey to you right now. Because it says through faith, this has to be part of the practical phase of salvation. What happens to us is when we read the words, who are kept by the power of God, we're thinking, oh, I'm glad God's power is keeping me. Well, I just want to ask you, how is He keeping you? Well, He's keeping me in the book of life. His power? Who's trying to get your name out of the book of life? His power. Your name is safe in the book of life by His faithfulness, His oath, and His covenant and counsel made before the foundation of the world that is absolutely immutable with or without your faith. But there is a power that is available to you by believing. And that's what I need to show you. Therefore, it's the practical phase because your faith is involved and God's power is resting upon your faith and to the degree that you exercise your faith in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your experience of your own life and in your experience of watching other Christians, does their faith in the gospel go up and down? Does your, does your tenacity and your confidence and your assurance in the things of the gospel go up and down? Yes, it goes up and down. And it, and it went up and down in every one of the New Testament. And that's why there were warnings about maintaining and holding your confidence steadfast to the end. And why the warnings about not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. But how are the, how are these strangers kept? They are kept by God's power, by their believing the promises of God and the gospel of God. God sends power into them that they will not be moved so that a William that is 19 years old that we had read to us and explained to us this morning could die at the stake. Do you think he did that by his own power? Is there anyone here that thinks that William did that by his own power? That he could pray that the way he did for 45 minutes before he was put to death and have such a moving effect even upon his enemies? That was the power of God in him. Well, how was that power of God activated? Because 
You know, as we look among ourselves and as we look in the mirror, we say, where's the power that William had? Because he was pressed to the point of really believing. Really believing. He was about to have his life taken away from him. Did he really believe that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord? When you really believe, and to the degree that you really believe, God's power is available for you to keep you so that you can stay established, stay full of assurance, stay confident in the Lord, full of joy, peace, and hope. Look at Romans 15. That verse that I have mentioned several times, I've put it in updates, I've mailed it to you, I want you to turn and look at it with me again. We preached it back a number of months when we worked our way through the epistle to the Romans. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, God's elect. One, to be born again, you have to be alive. To be alive, you're on planet earth. But heaven isn't here yet. So there is this period of time in which you have been born again, and you now have an old man and a new man wrestling inside of you, and heaven is still out in the future. We need to be kept. God's election is sure. Christ's justification is sure. Regeneration is already over. The final phase of salvation, depending upon the faithfulness of God, is absolutely certain. But we need to be kept. Because we've got this gap of time where our new man and our old man are struggling together wanting to make it and be ready for Christ at His appearing. Why are some more ready than others? Why will some be ashamed when they meet Christ and others will not? Because they reached forth by faith. And when they didn't have enough faith, they said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And by that, they were strengthened. Look at Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. There are three things that God gives. Joy, peace, and hope in this verse. Three things. How much joy and peace does He give? He fills you with all joy and peace. He fills you with all joy and peace. Would it have been easy to be a a stranger in Turkey, Asia Minor, persecuted by Gentiles, persecuted by pagans, persecuted by Jews, because you are now a Jewish Christian? Would it have been easy to lose sight of heaven? Would it have been easy to to become discouraged? Well, who's going to keep them? My Father in heaven is going to keep them. And how does He keep them? Reach out by faith. Did Jesus ever say, only, uh, please help me. Please tell me that only believe. There are times, only believe. Only believe. You can't see heaven. Can't see Christ. And yet it says in verse 8, In whom, though now ye see Him not, yet believing. Only believe. I'm thrilled to tell you this. Only believe. There are times that you are going to be reduced by suffering that God brings into your life and heaviness that He puts upon your soul for the trying of your faith where you will only have one recourse. You will have one recourse. Only believe. I like that. You mean He's not asking for the big, long, long list 
of works of righteousness that I ought to add to my faith? No, he knows that at times you're going to be reduced to only believe. And when you only believe, the power of God is going to come to your aid. That is what 1 Peter 1.5 is teaching. Romans 15.13, how much joy? Filled with all. Does that sound like joy unspeakable? If you're filled with all, how much peace? Filled with all. How much hope? Abounding in hope. Overflowing in hope. Are you kidding? I'm not discouraged. Did you hear that young man that died at 19? Was he discouraged? He said, I have greater peace than I've ever had in my life. Who in the world gave him that? God by His... I need a P word. God by His power. Because what does this text say? Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. Remember, God's heirs, we are His heirs. He's given us the earnest of our inheritance. We have a down payment. We have a promise to perform. We have a guarantee that God will perform and take us to heaven. And it's the Holy Spirit. That's the earnest of the inheritance. Well, is that Holy, what's that Holy Spirit doing in us? Just sitting there? And I'm just sitting there? Or is that Holy Spirit there available with power if you will only believe? Because look at this verse. I, I love explaining this verse to people who are discouraged. Do you know that there is a God in this universe who is the God of hope? The God of this world is the God of hopelessness. The God of the Canaanites was a God of hopelessness. Every other God in the universe is a God of hopelessness. Compared to our God, He's the God of hope. He can fill you with all joy and peace and give you abounding hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. There's only one part in this whole thing that's for you. What do you need to do to get all of that? Only believe in believing. Now this is not to get saved eternally. This is to have God's power unleashed in your life. And when I use words like that, I am not Benny Hinn. Telling you to get God's power unleashed in your life to get rid of that fungus under your toenail. I'm talking about God's power being unleashed in your life for joy, peace, and hope who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Am I making sense? I am in... I'm like you. I read the verse. I go read 20 commentaries. They get the word kept by the power of God. All they can think about is your eternal security. That verse is not about eternal security. It's about those poor strangers being persecuted up there in Turkey. Who's going to keep them you know, their salvation is already kept. Their, their reservation in heaven is going to be kept. Who's going to keep them? It gets discouraging when you have heaviness lying upon your soul. But I'm going to tell you what the power of God's able to do. Do you know that verse 6 says that they have heaviness through manifold temptations? But these are the same ones that two verses later are rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. How does that happen? In the Bible, it's called peace that passeth under all. Who said that? We got a star or something for you after the service, brother. It's very wonderful. Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God that passeth all understanding because it doesn't make sense. I heard moans and groans from you when our brother read about that particular martyr today. How he could have so much peace at the age of 19 facing imminent death. Where does that come from? This verse right here. 
and, and many other verses, but I'm trying to be brief, and I want you to understand one five, who are kept by the power of God. When you feel that you're losing it, when you feel that you're drifting away from God, when you feel that the circumstances are so negative in your life and you're so disappointed about things that have happened in your life and you have heaviness lying upon your soul. These are the Bible words. You have heaviness that is, cr- that is pressing you down. Will you remember two words with me? Only believe. That is my Father and your Father. Amen. And when you're getting pressed down and heaviness is weighing upon you, and yet you believe, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I want to tell you, you can read Psalm 18 to yourself because my Father is going to be writing to you on the clouds of heaven to your rescue. And the earth is going to shake with the power of God filling you with confidence and assurance and joy and peace, filling you with all joy and peace and abounding hope. I don't even know if I want to dilute what I've just said by showing you the next 15 proof texts of what 1 Peter 1.5 means. Let me just mention a couple without distracting you, but I want to finish with only believe. When they come and take away your house, we're living in Cappadocia. When they come and take away your house, and they come and take away your children, and they put you in a dungeon in a prison, Are you still going to believe elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you still going to believe blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you? You still going to believe that when they when all that happens? Are you going to have heaviness weighing on your soul at the same time? Yes. You can have heaviness weighing on your soul while rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Only believe. The power of God will keep you. That is 1 Peter 1:5. Does the Bible say, "Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might." Amen. So where does the power and might of God come from? By standing in all the armor of God. And what is the shield that we take up? The shield of faith. And what is the helmet that we put on? It is the hope of salvation. Do you understand? When you put those pieces on, the might of God is in you to stand against the wiles of the devil. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Satan hath desired to have you, all the disciples, and sift you like wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for thee. That is singular. He left all the other apostles out. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now that's the power of God keeping. That thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen your brethren. Will you look at one other verse with me? Psalm 27. We've got to cut it here. Psalm 27. Lord, have mercy upon every hearer whether they're here or any other, at any other time, let them know exactly what is in 1 Peter 1.5. Let them know that if they will believe and continue to believe and hold fast to the things of the gospel that you by your power are able to fill them with the full assurance of faith, that you're able to fill them with all joy and peace in believing, 
that you're able to cause them to abound in hope through the power of your Holy Ghost, which you have given to us as the earnest of our eternal inheritance, and His power is resident within us. He's dwelling with us. God, You are dwelling with us. I will dwell in them, and I will walk in them, and they shall be My people, and I shall be their God. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It is our faith that lays hold of that. And when we lay hold of it by faith, the Holy Spirit, instead of being grieved, instead of being quenched, has power for our living. Power for our consolation. Power for our comfort. Look at Psalm 27, which I have taught you over the years. The last two verses of this wonderful psalm. If you're ever afraid, Psalm 27 is one of the top three to go to in the book of Psalms. It's, a, it's against fear. Psalm 27 is against fear. Look at the first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Do you think there were any strangers scattered abroad that were in prison or being persecuted? In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 that could use Psalm 27, they did use Psalm 27. The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? The psalm is against fear. Look at the last two verses. I had fainted. When you have heaviness pressing you down, when you have heaviness weighing upon you, can you faint? Can Christians faint? Yes, they can faint. I had fainted. Now that's a past perfect tense in our King James Bibles, but by reading ahead, we know that the sense of those words are, I would have fainted. He didn't faint. I would have fainted unless I had believed. I had what? Who are kept by the power of God through faith. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. He shall strengthen thine heart. By what? By the power of God. He'll strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. There's a gap. I do believe in a gap. The gap is between when those strangers in Cappadocia were regenerated and taught the gospel and believed it to when they were going to meet Christ. There's this gap. The inheritance is sure. It's reserved in heaven for them. Justification is over. Christ did it on the cross. Who's going to take care of them? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, that He knows how weak we are. And if we will only believe, the power of God is ours to fill us with all these things and more things that I could show you and you can stand in the power of His might against the devil himself if you will but hold up the shield of faith. And all that means is you believe God's promises and He can throw all His fiery darts and you just quench them in that big shield of faith because you believe what God said. I don't care what you say to me. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen.